This is the third Sunday in Lent, and we have three readings in the lectionary that uh, give us what I think is an embarrassment of riches on this Sunday. The story of the people wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel, uh, and now uh, getting all, all over Moses about the fact that there's no water to drink. Uh, for once, a, a passage from uh, Paul's letter to the Romans that's actually intelligible. <laughs> and uh, the famous story of the Samaritan woman at the well and her uh, encounter with Jesus, which give us uh, once again another motif of living water, but also uh, the processes uh, of conversion and how we understand what that might mean when we think about uh, repentance, which is one of the great Lenten themes, how we uh, look at our life in a new direction, change the direction in which we're looking for happiness, and uh, how does that process work on uh, our hearts and minds as we go through it. Today we have a reading from Exodus that in biblical scholarship is known as one of the murmuring texts. I love the murmuring texts. Perish life, 1250 BCE. <laughs> the people of Israel are uh, murmuring and they're mad at Moses because they're frightened. Uh, they don't have any water to drink. This is a passage about leadership, and it's a passage uh, that gives us some other uh, things to reflect on. Jerry Witherspoon, Colonel Jerry Witherspoon, a great Episcopalian from this diocese who died uh, about a year ago, one time decided that he wanted to do some figuring about um, how long it would have taken the people of Israel to go from bondage in Egypt to the promised land. And because of his military training, he, he wanted to factor in all of the issues that you'd do if you were talking about a, a march like this, women, children, animals, peoples, supplies, all of these kinds of things. And after taking all these things in account through reading the biblical witness, uh, he concluded that the people of Israel could have got to the promised land in three weeks. <laughs> so in the biblical witness, it tells us it took them 40 years because they were wandering around. Now, I remember in the Bible when you read the, word, the, the number 40, 40 days and 40 nights, 40 years, it means a long time. So what in the world were they doing in the wilderness? It's a metaphor for the kind of uh, coming to terms with a new identity. You know, in our own developmental life, we go through that, don't we? We did a lot of wandering around when we were younger. Maybe we're doing a lot of wandering around when we're older. Who knows? But there's a process that uh, we're coming to about this. And the people of Israel are complaining uh, of Mo about Moses' leadership. And so Moses complains to God. And God says, here's what you do. You take some of the elders with you and you get out ahead of your people. And you go and you come to a place uh, that I tell you and bring the staff with you that you use to part the sea. 
And when you get to this place, you are to hit the rock. And he does, and the water gushes out. Early Christians are going to read this passage from Exodus, and they're going to uh, see it as a type, a symbol for them of baptism. This water is gushing out, and it's reminiscent of the water that Jesus is going to speak to the Samaritan woman about in John's Gospel. And so the people of Israel now have their thirst slaked, and they don't have as much to bellyache about. But Moses said, I'm going to name this place Massa and Meribah because the people were complaining. Moses does something that's very important in leadership. He refocuses the people. And he turns their gaze from the place of remembered good times in Egypt to looking to the future, where, as we know in the story, the narrative tells us the people of Israel are going to go somewhere where they receive a new self-definition and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for them as a people. In the ancient Near East, uh, the principal location for new identity and everything was mainly corporate. People didn't think so much about their subjective emotional, spiritual, and mental states. Although they weren't unimportant, they were not the major focus. So by extension, as uh, the people of the covenant read that story over and over again, they began to see that it had a relationship both as uh, the people, but also to their own personal lives. This is a story about the history of salvation and how they came to the place where they understood God's purposes for them in a deeper and fuller sense. And so, too, that is what this passage is about for us. Paul is putting together, a, a in Romans 5, he's talking about uh, the issue of being justified by faith, by justification. And the consequences of being justified are now that they are in a position to be able to understand the saving power of God. But it won't be without some suffering. Father Keating would say about this passage that Paul is talking about that, that, that suffering ha is a means of purification. That's very hard for people to understand or believe today. We live in a culture that believes in symptom relief. I mean, I don't want to do any suffering. I've tried to avoid as much suffering as possible in my life, right? And I realize that there sometimes is just no way to do that. You can't go under it. You can't go over it. You can't go around it. You've got to go through it. And you've got to do some reflecting uh, uh, with regard to what, did, what does it do. Paul says it produces character. What's character? Years ago, I took a class at the Pacific School of Religion by an Episcopal priest named John Sanford, who was a Jungian therapist. He was famous. And uh, he talked about dreams. This is what it was about. But he also talked about the idea of what character was. And he said, one of the ways you can define character is to understand it as 
um, living your life according to certain principles. So Paul is speaking about the development because of being justified in Christ that we now can transform ourselves and that we can, in fact, live our life according to certain principles. And that has an effect on our character, the kind of human beings we become. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. How was it given to us? It was given to us through our baptism. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And so as we understand those processes spiritually, we begin to understand our relationship to God uh, in a fuller sense. Father Thomas Keating says when he speaks about the contemplative life, he goes through a process at some length of talking about developmental psychology. How when we grow up, we, for example, uh, develop what is known as a separate sense of self. That we're the, uh, we're the other. And all of a sudden we realize that there is the other with a capital O. <laughs> and we're separated from the capital O because we understand ourselves as a self. And then in the processes of contemplation and the development and maturing of the spiritual life, you re realize you, little o and big O, are now big O, one thing. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, that's referred to as the process of deification, or in Greek, theosis. So it means that as we live and mature in the spirit and understand what Paul is speaking of and go through these processes of purification, we become less unlike God. Or as Father Keating would say, who comes from the Western tradition, we are not God, but our true self is God. And Paul today is speaking about that sort of relationship in the reading from John's Gospel, a very long Gospel, Jesus is, uh, encounters the, the Samaritan woman. The Samaritans are the group of people who did not, were not taken on the to the Babylonian captivity. The Jews from Jerusalem, most of them went to Babylon for a considerable period of time. The Samaritans remained where they were. And as time went on, their whole, uh, the practice of their religion and uh, the location of their holy places and all of these things changed and was different from the Jews. And by the time we see an end to the exile, the Samaritans and the Jews were separate from one another and there was enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews. So to read this story in John's Gospel about Jesus being in a Samaritan town and sitting at a well with a Samaritan woman and speaking to her was unthinkable. 
Actually, one of my favorite parts to this, to this gospel, though, is when um, she says, uh, Sir, I, I have no husband. And he said, You're right to tell me that you have no husband. You have had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And her response is, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> But then he goes on to describe uh, an issue of having your spiritual thirst slaked by the living water. So the water that's in this well will satisfy your thirst temporarily, but we're all yearning for that kind of uh, satisfying our spiritual thirst in perpetuity. And so in the original language, Jesus is using, or, or the, 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 John, the author of John's gospel is using a word referring to living water in English as an inexhaustible stream. Not well water, which can go dry, but water that always stays there, like the water gr- gushing out of the rock in the wilderness with the people of Israel. And this water would be like water from an underground source that's flowing through. And he describes this to her, and it's important. Uh, As the result of listening to Jesus about those issues, she begins now the process of her conversion, and she goes back to the town Uh, and speaks to the people back in the town and said, this man told me everything I ever did, and he's uh, the Messiah. So when she thinks about that and speaks about, by the way, somebody said at the sermon discussion group who's been there, uh, this town is still there, which used to be called Samaria, and there are a number of Christian Palestinians who are from there. And it may surprise you, but uh, I, I know a few of them. And uh, the, the startling thing when you go there or they come here and you're talking to them about something, you say, well, how long have you been a Christian? And they'll look at you and say, 2,000 years. 2,000 years. Long time. So she goes back, and here's the process that she goes through. She realizes that she's being accepted and received in one's vulnerable, sinful, or shameful state. She's being listened to and taken seriously, though the listener knows all the facts. She's having her deepest hunger fed, being loved for who she is and invited to become greater. Sharing one's experience with others, which is what she do, the townspeople respond and maybe begin their own process of conversion. And then she and they become part of the community of believers. So this process of conversion is spoken of in John's gospel, but it is a process that those in the early Christian church of the first three centuries or four centuries uh, who wrote about their own conversion described So elsewhere in uh, Paul's letters, we have a description of his conversion, and we have one of the most famous, which is St. Augustine, who talks about his own conversion.
and speaks about a process not unlike this, that he now realizes that he is moving in a direction to get close to the big O. So this week, uh, see if you're able to turn away from the place of remembered good times. I read years ago a definition of, of the term romantic. I used to think romantic hat meant, you know, love. But I think in literature it means the belief that there was a time in the past that is preferable to the one that we're in now. Don't, don't we feel that way sometimes? We think there was a time in the past. My 50th high school reunion is coming up sometime this year. And I am now getting emails from a committee that apparently is putting this thing together. And you can tell by the tone of some of the communications that this was the high point of some of these people's lives. I left high school at a dead run. <laughs> Lordy. So that's the place of remembered good times. And it's not uh, bad to feel that way about how wonderful it is for many people and, and when they, we were young and all of those things. But it isn't looking to uh, a new future that God continually makes present to each of us to understand more fully and deeply God's purposes for us and how essential we are to God's plan for the cosmos and how important it is that he unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives us. And through that process, uh, we're able to grow into the best human beings we can be. Amen.